Good morning. Easter is a mere two weeks away. Can you believe it? It's actually late this year, but I, for me, no matter when it happens, it always seems like it's upon us, you know, or always seems like it's soon. I can't believe it's only two weeks away. Next week, of course, is Palm Sunday and then Easter, and to help us prepare for Easter, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today. And then um, I'm also going to give you something today to help prepare ourselves for Resurrection Day, something that you can use. But first, leading up to communion and to Easter as well, we've been discussing the essentials of the Christian faith, as you know if you've been with us. What are, what are those essentials that make Christianity Christian? And you may recall that uh, we left off last week at a rather perilous spot, but uh, intentional at least, so this much could sink in and be fully appreciated for a week before I cover it up, literally, with something else. But we left off last week at least with what I feel is a Christian essential, that biblical truth, that biblical proclamation that God indeed made human beings in His image. Our God, who is greatness and goodness, and all of those attributes that go along with Him being great and good, our God, who is great and who is good, makes people like Him makes people to be great and to good. All people are made in the image of God. We are created in the image and likeness of God. And I suggested to you last week that that should impact greatly how it is we treat other people, whether or not they know the Lord. Because whether or not they know it, every person is made in the image of God. They're created to be like God. People are created in His image. Now, even though people are created in God's image, there's a problem. And it's a huge problem. The biggest problem ever. The biggest, the biggest problem ever for every person who ever lives. And that problem is, in a word, sin. You see, some people might think, and there are philosophers or studiers of human sociology or whatever field it is, that in fact teach, well, you know, if people are created in God's image, if they're created great and good, there shouldn't be a problem. All we need to do is let them go, and given enough time, that will come out, and They'll be great and good, and so all we need to do is live out that innate goodness in us. But there's a problem in being able to live out fully that image of God in us. And the problem is sin. Because sin is a force. It's a power. And it's a power with a purpose. And its purpose, one way to look at its purpose... Sin's purpose, its malevolent intent, one way to look at it is it's to keep those created in God's image from fully realizing that created image of God and from fully living it out. Sin does its best to keep that from happening. 
You remember the story, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Sin has yet to enter creation until Adam and Eve decided to invite it into creation, this power with a purpose. We've covered this before, but it doesn't hurt to remind ourselves that God did not create sin. Humanity did. God gave human beings free will. He gave them the ability to choose to go there to create sin, but God didn't create evil or sin. And so Adam and Eve brought sin into existence when they decided to try and keep God from being God. And if you want one baseline definition of sin at least, there's one. Sin is failing to let God be God. God, as God said, don't eat of that tree. Humanity responded through Adam and Eve, you know, we'd like to be like God. We'd like to decide what's best for us. And so far beyond the specific act of eating a particular piece of fruit, humanity in principle, through Adam and Eve, chose to be God instead of letting God be God. They sinned. And they invited the power of sin into creation. And that force, that power, that decision to let anything or anyone other than God be God, that force is what tries to keep those created in God's image from fully realizing that image in them and from fully living it out. See, some will say that when Adam and Eve sinned, well, so much for the image of God in them. They were no longer in God's image. That image was somehow lost. It no longer existed in them. But I'd suggest that Scripture points toward a different conclusion. For example, in Genesis 9, verse 6, it says, "'Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed.'" For in the image of God has God made mankind. In other words, murder is prohibited on the grounds that people are created in God's image, so don't murder them. And this is after sin has entered into the world. So the image of God is still there in people, all people, regardless of whether or not they know it or know the Lord. And similarly, in James 3, verse 9, James tells us that God condemns cursing people. Why? Because people are made in God's likeness, James says. So both Testaments talk of the image of God still being present in people after sin has entered the world. The image of God is still there in people, but it's been poisoned. It's been marred, impeded taken hostage, defaced, clouded. It's been confused, corrupted, twisted, hindered, or entangled. That's where my thesaurus ran out. (laughs) It's been defaced somehow by this power, this preventing power called sin, this power that causes us 
to fail to let God be God. And as a result, keeps us from fully realizing and living out that created image of God in us. And that's a huge problem. And the reason it's huge is because in order for people to be truly and fully intimate with a God who is holy again, this problem needs to be overcome and defeated, this problem of sin. It stands in the way of our being able to fully realize and fully live out that image of God in us. And that's a huge problem. It must be spring because the Masters Golf Championship is here again. How many of you have been watching? Oh, there's like applause over here for watching the Masters. Yeah, even non-golfers like to watch it, even world over I was reading it's kind of a rite of spring. My favorite golfer, my favorite golfer all time is Jack Nicholas. Nobody else, I guess. Who likes Jack? All right, that's good. Well, the other night, the other night they did, uh, ESPN did a one-hour special to mark the 25th anniversary of Jack's amazing win at the Masters in 1986. And as I was watching the special, it dawned on me, hey, there's something here at least that's a lot like what I'm feeling I'd like to talk about on Sunday. So here it is. I could still remember where I was in 1986 when I was watching that tournament. I was alone in my college dorm room at Hope College shouting at the TV, rooting for Jack. Almost the whole hall was out or they'd gone home to do homework or something. I was in Scott Hall all by myself with my little TV blaring, not believing what I'm seeing. In my opinion, now you can disagree, and I know there are other candidates. In my opinion, what, in my opinion, what Jack did in 1986 was the single greatest individual accomplishment in all of sports, all time. Now, you can differ in your opinion. I ask about all-time sports, you know, happenings or events, and often, you know, the USA Olympic hockey team versus Russia comes up. That was great, too. In my opinion, this was bigger. And uh, I'll at least share with you why I think it was. Coming into the tournament... Coming into the tournament, Jack Nicklaus, the Golden Bear, had completely, completely lost his golf game. He was ranked 160th in the world at the time. His tour winnings that year had totaled $4,004. He was done. He was washed up. You could see it in his body language. He was going through the motions. It was over. And then... A rather mean-spirited article in an Atlanta newspaper on the eve of the Masters Tournament in 1986 called on Jack to retire and to just get out of the way, get out of the game, because he was an embarrassment. Was it old age? Jack was 46. 46 46-year-olds simply don't win the Masters. Someone at the break between services pointed out to me that the two Uh, young men leading the Masters today, if you combine their age, they're not 46. (laughs) Was was, was, Was it Jack's struggling business? 
you ask him, a reporter did at that time, he said, well, he was overextended, and uh, there were reports that he was flirting with bankruptcy, at least. But for whatever reason, Jack was done, and he was going through the motions. And then, something happened. Jack remembered something. He remembered who he was. He remembered what he had in him. He remembered what, in part at least, he had been created to do and that he could do. He entered the last day of the tournament seven shots back. Eight of the 12 top golfers in the world in front of him. And Jack remembered who he was with one of his sons, Jack II, who he called Jackie, caddying for him that day. Jack remembered what he had in him and what he could do. And I brought some highlights of his unforgettable back nine that day. As you watch, ask yourself what it may have to do with what we've been talking about the past two weeks and Take a look at my favorite scene, if you notice it, when Jack makes his eagle, his caddying son is to the right of the screen, and he nearly jumps up off of the screen. Let's watch. Jack Nicholas for birdie. To go four under par. The bear, the bear is stalking. Come on, Jack, smile. That's it. We won't count him out on this back nine. How many times has he played it from next to nothing to win? Jack Nicholas has 200 yards, and he never needed an eagle more. There have been three eagles in the last four players, Pavin, Coke, and McCumber. him seven under par. And the old bear is back. And this to go, seven under par. going to fire this right at the pin. He's going to think, Jack, this is time right now. Make the swing that you are capable of making. Stay down, accelerate through the ball, make a good golf swing. Your destiny is right here.
the bear has come out of hibernation. Of course, concentrating on his second shot from in between two pines, 125 yards out. sole possession of the lead. There's life in the old bear yet. My British accent's terrible. Whatever happened to Ben Wright? Did he pass away? God rest his soul. Don't you wish you could call a game like that with that British accent? There are, there are great bumper stickers, at least, for the Christian faith throughout that clip, in my opinion. My goodness, there's God's image in us yet. The battle is joined Make the swing you're capable of, Jack. This is your destiny. Live out the image of God in you, followers of God. This is your destiny. You see, like Nicholas, we have greatness in us. In fact, the greatness and goodness of God since he created us in his own image. And I, like Nicholas, we face incredible obstacles for living out that image of greatness. I'm not sure what Jack's obstacles were, whether it was old age or confidence or declining skills or ability. I'm not sure what it was. But for us, that obstacle is sin, that force that attempts to bury the image of God in us, attempts to cause us to forget, to keep us from remembering that God made us in His image. Now, people can do good things even if they don't know God. Have you noticed? Someone who doesn't know God can certainly love and can certainly help people. One question is, you know, how are they able to do that without knowing God? And I think the answer is, 
I think the answer is because they are made in the image of God. And that image shows itself from time to time, even in those who don't know the Lord. But in order to truly and completely defeat sin once and for all, to overcome that force against us, to be truly intimate with God again, to be truly intimate with others. In order to do that, to defeat that power of sin once and for all, well, people need Jesus. He's the only one Jesus is the only way to completely destroy the power of sin. He's the only way that we can be restored to that intimate fellowship with God. And at the risk of overextending the metaphor of Nicholas and the Masters, I saw in an interview once where Nicholas in tears told the reporter how much it was he needed his son on his bag that day. He needed Jackie to caddy for him. Jack will tell you he couldn't have done what he did that day without his son. Likewise, we need Jesus on our bag. We can't do it alone. We need his advice, his presence, his jumping up and down, his weeping with us. We need him with us if we're to fully rediscover that image of God in us. We can only do that with Jesus with us and in us. And while sin is indeed a huge problem, in Christ we can recover who we are. We can recover only through Christ that fully expressed, fully realized image of God in us. We can remember. We can remember that generational type, even subconscious memory, maybe a spiritual memory as well, but we can remember in Christ what it was like for Adam and Eve before the fall, walking in the cool of the day with God. We can remember that we are created in God's image. We can overcome this incredible force of sin because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he defeated it, this incredible power of sin, enabling us to once again fully realize, fully live, fully express the image of God in us. So help us God. The Apostle Paul is right in Philippians. We can indeed do all things. What he means is we can do good times and bad. We can indeed do good times and bad times through Christ who gives us strength. The author of Hebrews is correct. We can indeed in Christ throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run the race marked out for us. And we can do this because of Jesus. And P.S., if you see that first part of Hebrews 12, verse 1 on the screen, that great cloud of witnesses that are there, they too cheer for us, the Bible says. All who have gone before, cheering for us as loudly and as eagerly as any of the patrons you'll see today at Augusta. 
When we invite Jesus into our lives, the battle is indeed joined. And the battle against sin in our lives, the battle front at least, is in our relationships. Certainly our relationship to God, as I've mentioned, but also our relationships with others and our relationship or regard of self. You say, of self, what do you mean? Well, a proper self-esteem is crucial in defeating the power of sin and living in obedience to God. It's one reason why I paused where I did last week. I think we far too eagerly sometimes miss the blessing and the encouragement that comes from the fact that we're created in the image of God. We cover it up very quickly with the power of sin. And I understand why we do that, because theologically it's important to get to where Jesus and only Jesus can release it. But my friends, we're made in the image of God. And have you noticed, all three relationships are there in Shema. The relationship with God, the relationship with others, and our regard of self. And that last one almost always goes unmentioned, or people don't like to talk about it. But they're all there. Jesus tells us, love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, with all our mind. There's that relationship with God. And then he says, and love your neighbor. There's our relationship with all others. But he adds, love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. So what happens if our regard of self or our love of self, in proper perspective at least, what happens if that's broken? Well, our love of others will be broken too, won't it? The battlefront of sin is in our relationships, and that's a huge topic to close with here. I intend to develop it more on Easter as we talk about Jesus being the one who restores relationships through his life and death and resurrection. But the battlefront is our relationships. You think of the relationships that you have. You think of the sin struggles that you have. How many of them fall into one of those three categories? How many of your sin struggles fall into and get in the way of your relationship with God specifically? How many of what you wrestle with sin get in the way of your relationships with others, your husbands, your wives, your kids, your parents, your friends, anyone? And how much of the sin that you struggle with gets in the way of a proper understanding of yourself being created in God's image for greatness in Christ. Yes, I think the battlefront of sin is our relationships. It's what the devil attacks and enjoys attacking. It's where that force of sin wells up strongest in keeping us from fully realizing and living out the image of God. Now, as part of our preparation for Easter, I said I'm going to invite you to do something and give you something. And I'm, I'm going to invite you, invite all of us, me too, to the battlefront of sin, at least when it comes to our relationship with others in particular, at least in one way. And then I want to give you something to help you. To set it up, Tom Rayner 
president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources, shares these sobering statistics. 96% of people who don't go to church are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they are invited. And here's the sobering part. Only 21% of church-going Christians invite someone to church in a given year. And only 2% invite someone who doesn't otherwise go to church. Ouch! Nine out of ten who don't go to church are inclined to come if asked. One out of every 50 of us in here statistically ask. And I'm not sure what's going on there. Well, that's not quite right. I'm reasonably sure of one thing. I think those statistics bear out that in this area, at least, the force, the battle against sin is particularly heated and we're losing it. Why aren't we asking? Every reason I come up, I come up with for me why I don't invite people more to church is so woefully pathetic. Don't I care enough about them to ask them to come and get to know God or get to know God better? Don't I care enough to, to offer to help them in any way that we can be God's love to them? Am I content just to enjoy the blessing of, of you all and our church and the blessing of God through here myself? Am I embarrassed to ask them? Am I afraid I'll offend them? Am I worried what they'll think of me? And one theologian suggested this answer, and it's one that's stuck with me, and I've read that paragraph every day this week. His suggestion is, I'll put it in the form of my question, am I just too lazy to make the effort to ask? Or too busy. If you never ask anyone to church, why don't you? I mean, you're here. You must think it's somewhat important or somewhat valuable. I think those of you who are here have experienced the blessing of God in this community of people. Why wouldn't we want to share that with others? Say, well, we do want to. Well, why wouldn't we ask? Well, for the next couple of weeks, at least, I'm going to invite all of us. I'm going to invite all of us to invite one person to church for Easter. Maybe it's a start. People are especially to come come to church, are especially eager to come to church on Easter. So I'm going to invite you all to ask, one person at least to church for Easter. And if you can, ask someone who you suspect doesn't otherwise go to church or know the Lord. Tom Rayner has uh, this encouraging word for us. I found it encouraging, and it, it pushes against what the media seems to tell us. 
And that made me angry too. But here's what Tom Rainer's research showed. He writes this to us. I wish you had the same opportunity my research team had to listen to these unchurched persons. They interviewed hundreds. If you could have heard how many of the unchurched are waiting on someone to explain the way of salvation, you might have a whole new outlook on reaching these people. You might be surprised that when some Christians may think the time is just not right, the unchurched are wondering why we are so reticent. His statistics show that overwhelmingly people who don't go to church have a positive view of the church, listing it as their number one important social institution, at least in the United States. They have a positive outlook of pastors. Go figure. (laughs) And his research even found that when they come to church and have a bad experience because someone uh, isn't friendly or is mean to them or they feel condemned, etc., do you know what? They're extremely forgiving and their positive view of the church as a whole stays. This idea that people don't like us I think it's a media creation. Statistics show they view us in a positive light. And maybe the devil uses that sense that we're not liked and where they don't want us around and they don't want to hear to keep us from asking the 9 out of 10 that would come and maybe experience God if we only would ask. So will we join in the battle against sin in this way, the battle against the power of sin that would keep us from getting to know more people and sharing with them the love of God, this, the love of God that this people of God has to offer them, and in that way more fully realize our image of God who eagerly loves people and wants to get to know them and get to know them more. And I told you I'd give you something to help. Some of you have asked for something like this in the past, and, and finally we've got something. On the way out today, you'll find the ushers and some elders back there with the offering plates, and in them there'll be this little card. And in this little card, on one side it says, Easter service times, 8.30 and 10.30 a.m., West Bulls Community Church. And on the other side it gives our address and this little slogan, Let us surprise you. And some of you have asked, you know, as, to get over the awkwardness, you know, I, treat it as an invitation maybe. You don't have to use it, but, you know, I can see you handing it to someone and say, hey, I don't know if you have a church that you go to on Easter, if you'd like to go to church, if you'd like to, you know, I go to West Bowles Community Church and the music there is great and I know some friends there and there's these small groups and boy, they've been a real blessing to me and they've been able to help me out in such and such a way and, you know, the... The messages are a little long, but they're all right. (laughs) Sometimes he'll even show a video. I don't know. Is it that hard just to ask? So take a card. Take two. If we run out, we'll have more next week. And uh, you prayerfully consider before the Lord. Don't, Don't do it because I ask you, but you consider. You know, is there one person that I can ask? 
Maybe it's someone you don't even know. Maybe it's the person checking you out at King Supers. Maybe it's a neighbor that you've been meaning to walk over and ask and you just never have. I don't know. But go with God's confidence and just ask him to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'd ask, Father, that you would, um, leading up to Easter, renew in us, renew in us a sense of the battle, the battle against that force of sin. Even as we come to the place to celebrate the one who won the battle for us once and for all and now asks us to join him in that victory. Father, we know that there are many around us, even within walking distance of this church, hundreds if not thousands, that don't have a church home and don't know who you are. Father, would you use us, please? Would you use us to introduce them to the God who is love? Would you use us to help them to get to know you more? And Father, would you bless us with their life stories, their experience, and their love. Please use us in this way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.